Okay, well, let's open our Bibles to the first page. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, would you please raise your hand? We would be glad to hand you a Bible, and that's yours to keep if you'd like, if you don't have one. So raise your hand nice and high over in the conference center and here in the chapel. If you need a Bible, we would be glad to give that to you. Uh, again, first page, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We're going today to look at the doctrine of creation. According to Dr. Wayne Grudem in his book, Bible Doctrine, the doctrine of creation is defined as follows. God created the entire universe out of nothing. It was originally very good, and he created it for his glory. Now, what that means is that before God began to create the universe, not a single molecule existed except for God. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at a bunch of scriptures, and because of time, we're not going to be able to turn to every one of those. So just write them down if you want to look them up later, or I'm going to get them on the website as well. So we're going to look at a lot of scripture today, but we're not going to be turning to each passage. We're going to stay pretty much in Genesis chapter 1 um, the whole morning. So here's some verses. God created from nothing. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Verse 9 of Psalm 33 says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Hebrews chapter 11 Verse 3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. All these verses make it clear that creation did not come out of previously existing material. Because God created the universe from nothing, nothing else is eternal. Everything that we can see with our eyes, that we could see through a microscope, that we could see through a telescope, and all of those things that are beyond the range of the most powerful telescope came into existence when God created them. Everything, everything but God has a beginning. And what that means is that God is independent from his creation. He's involved with it, but he is not in it. He is independent of it. Secondly, it means that God is sovereign in authority and control over his creation. And thirdly, it means only God is due worship and praise because he is the creator, the sustainer, and the authority over everything. So, having a right understanding of where everything came from is important to us because it gives us another picture of the magnificence of God. The doctrine of creation is foundational to our Christian faith because it's where God starts his story. In Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then throughout the rest of Genesis chapter 1 and into verse 3 of Genesis chapter 2, God describes how he created. He first provided all of the material necessary. And then the first three days, through a process of separations, he separated the light from the darkness. Then he separated the, the earth, the, the physical, from the sky. 
Then he separated on the earth the, the land from the water. Then in the next three days, through a process of filling, he filled the sky, he filled the seas, and he filled the earth. And God completed that creation within six days and then rested on the seventh day. Now, for us to understand this process, we have to see a couple of the Hebrew words or phrases. First of all, in the beginning, God. That word for God is the Hebrew word Elohim. And whenever you have a Hebrew word that ends in I-M, it's like an English ending in S. It means plural. And then also we see in Genesis chapter 1, if you go over to verse 26, Moses says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. What God is doing here is he's emphasizing the fact that we saw in the first week of this series that God is, exists as Trinity. One God existing in three persons. And all three of those persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, participate in the process of creation. Again, let's look at some scripture. John chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Jesus, says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 say, also speaking of Jesus, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. So what you see here is God the Father creating through God the Son, while God the Spirit sustains it and preserves it. Now, it's also important to understand the Hebrew phrase, heavens and earth. That phrase literally includes everything that there is. There's nothing left out. I was trying to think of an of a English phrase that kind of fit with that, and the only thing I could come up with, being an older guy, is kit and caboodle. Okay? <laughs> the whole kit and caboodle. I couldn't find what that meant. Somebody told me, Stephanie McLaren grabbed me after the first service and said, oh, I can tell you what that means. I was a, a world history teacher, and it's it's an 18th century phrase, and kit is actually the word kith, which means kind of all of your possessions and caboodle comes from the word boodle which meant all of your family which means the whole kit and caboodle means everything you have and all of the people and that's what heavens and earth means everything everybody nothing is left out God is the creator of it all um, and and that's what Genesis 1 1 tells us now here's the deal either you believe that that verse is accurate and God is the creator of everything, or you believe that God is not the one who created everything. And if it's not God, then you have to answer the question, where did all this come from? I believe that there are only two choices, and that is either that God is the creator, as he says here in the Bible, or everything just appeared by random chance, coincidence. In other words, without a creator, nobody times nothing equals everything. 
I thought you might laugh about that, but <laughs> let me cross that one off. <laughs> Either there is a God who created the universe and who sustains it all, or there, the only way we can explain everything that's around is through this series of random mutations. Um, and if that's the case, if there isn't a God who created and who sovereignly controls everything, then everything that we see, every planet, every person, every animal, every insect, everything came about through random mutations and they occurred by chance. If chance exists, then God can't be sovereign. Because if chance exists, then that means that God is not in control of every molecule. See, sovereignty is defined as supreme and independent authority overall. And if there are some molecules out there that might go this way or might go that way, then God is not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, he's not God. And if he's not God and not the creator, then all we see, all the complexity, all the beauty, all the order, did in fact evolve by random chance. Now, this idea of evolution was first proposed in 1859 by Charles Darwin in his book, um, The Origin of the Species. And that book says that unintelligent, inorganic matter randomly organizes itself by chance into highly complex forms of life and over time, lots of time, to the level of human personality and intelligence. Let me try this one. It's from goo to zoo to you. <laughs> That's better. As, as funny as that is, and I'm glad it was, um, unfortunately, it's the single greatest satanic lie ever perpetrated on mankind because it eliminates the need for God. It is, gives people the ability to disregard the, Bible, the God of the Bible altogether. Um, a guy named James Moore wrote a biography of, uh, of Charles Darwin, and it's called The Life of a Tormented Evolutionist. And in the book, Moore records that in some of his letters, Darwin referred to his own theory as the devil's gospel. See, Darwin's theory eliminates God because it's based purely on what we can see, what is observable. There is no thought of the supernatural, that there is a creator. But see, now today, the deeper science goes, the more it's forced to the conclusion that there must be a creator. Scientists acknowledge now the complexity of even a single-celled amoeba, that it is so complex that they've come up with this idea of intelligent design. The problem with that is if there's design, there must be a designer. And although they've come to recognize behind this complex universe is an incomprehensibly intelligent and powerful being who really made everything, they still will not acknowledge that it's God. But see, that's the only thing that makes sense. Evolution just doesn't make sense. It says we evolved out of slime. 
and, and that we can only be described in the materialistic sense. It says that, that the only meaning that we have is the material. But where did those emotions come from? Where did the intelligence come from? Where did the feelings come from? Well, the only way to answer that question is that we are created in the image of a personal, relational God. Listen to Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Any person that looks at God's handiwork and denies God's existence is a fool. Now listen, that's not my words. That's what the Bible says actually in two separate places that says the same thing. In Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1, both say the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Only a fool can look at the intricacies of creation and deny that there is a God and claim that all this can be explained by evolution. Now, you have to understand that there is a phenomenon called microevolution, which simply means that within a specific species, changes occur over time. Within that species. Let me give you an example. It even happens within human beings. Uh, when I was in high school 40 years ago, 40 years ago, Oh, jeepers. Um, I played uh, football, and our offensive line, when we were a very good team, our offensive line averaged 180 pounds. Okay? Today, high school kids are pushing 300 pounds on the offensive line. Changes have occurred within the species of human beings. Changes occur within species. But science, over the last 150 years, has failed to substantiate Darwin's theory of macroevolution, which says that basically everything that exists comes from the same ancestor and that through the process of natural selection, acting on random variation is the only way to explain how fish became amphibians, how amphibians became reptiles, how reptiles became birds, and how birds became mammals. But God says in Genesis chapter 1 very clearly that he created all life in the sky, in the water, and on the land according to its kind. Look at Genesis 1 verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. Also look at verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Verse 25. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. What that means is that fish make other fish. They don't make lizards. Lizards make other lizards. They don't make birds. Birds don't make monkeys. And monkeys don't make people. Not ever. Not over a billion years. You see, in reality, believing either the doctrine of creation or the theory of evolution takes faith. Okay, We couldn't see either thing. 
Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 3, we looked at earlier, says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Evolution is nothing more than a 20th century religion that denies reason and denies revelation. It is not science. Science is based on what you can observe and what you can measure. If you can't repeat it, if you can't measure it, and if you can't falsify it, it's not science. It's religion. I believe that evolution is still adhered to today by very smart people for one reason and one reason alone. Not that they don't recognize that there's a designer and a creator. It's because they don't want a judge. They don't want to be responsible to a God who says there is absolute truth, to a God that says that there is moral absolutes, to a God that says that there will be a judge. They want to be able to say, what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. But see, if there's a God who is a creator, there is also a God who is a judge, and therefore there is absolute truth. There are absolute morals, and there is judgment that will come. See, evolution strokes our rebellious nature. Ever since the, the first man rebelled against God because he wanted to do things his way, we have continued to look for ways to rebel against God. And the non-spiritual person is obviously going to look for ways to set himself up above a creator God. Now, there is a question among Christians about creation. Most Christians would not disagree that, in fact, God is the creator. They won't disagree with the how of creation. But where we sometimes run into conflict is the when of creation. How long did creation take? Are the seven days, as described in Genesis chapter 1, seven 24-hour literal days, or are they seven periods of time un in undetermined length? Now, that is a, that is a question uh, that this idea of the age of the earth that Bible-believing Christians have differed over over the last 150 or, or 200 years. It isn't that long that this controversy has gone, but it is a, an issue that Christians disagree on, and godly people can disagree and yet still agree on the foundational issues related to salvation. But I would like to tell you why I believe that Genesis uh, is talking about seven literal 24-hour days. The Hebrew word that is used for day in Genesis chapter 1 is the word yom. That word is used over 2,000 times in Scripture. The vast majority of the times that it's used in Scripture, it relates to one 24-hour period. There are a few occasions where the word yom is used in the day of the Lord, which is a period of time, with an undefined period of time. But here's the thing. Any time that the word yom is qualified by a number, as it is here in Genesis chapter 1, when God says first day, second day, third day, every time in the Hebrew language that yom is qualified by a number, it's referring to one 24-hour period. In addition to that, Moses, when he is describing what God has done, not only does he say first day, but he says the evening and the morning 
of the first day. It's like he wanted to make sure we understood he was talking about one day. So he's put a number in front of it, and then he put a bracket around it and said evening and morning. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, Moses says, In six days God created the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. Again, yom, qualified by a number, means 24 hours. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches, but I want you to know that there are people who I greatly respect uh, who would make the argument that yom here means uh, seven periods of, of undefined length. Again, it's not something that, that is a cause for uh, division among uh, Christian brothers and sisters because it isn't a salvation issue. Now, what I want us to do is spend the last rest of this time on is the why of creation. Why is it important to us? Why is the doctrine of creation important to us as followers of Christ? And I want us to look at six implications of the doctrine of creation. First, because creation is true, our value is not derived ultimately from ourselves, but from a source outside of us, God himself. We were created by God in his image, and we are loved by that God who created us. And because of this, we are endowed with value and with dignity, and we are not some random mixture of genetic mutations that somehow made it to the level of humanity. Apart from the belief that mankind is created in the image of a holy God, the divinely derived dignity and value that we have completely disappears because we're just a lump of material that came together that's just so happened to evolve to the level of human personality and intelligence. But listen to what David says in Psalm 139. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We were made by God himself, and God don't make no junk. You have great value. No matter what you might think about yourself, no matter what negative feelings that you have when you look in the mirror or when you think about yourself, you have great value. And what this passage tells us is that the unborn have great value because God is knitting them together in his, the mother's womb. It says that, that elderly people have great value. It says people with infirmities have great value. That every person that's created has great value. Don't you ever think to yourself that I am worthless. Don't you ever think to yourself that I'm no good and I have no value. You have great value because you are created by the great creator of the universe. And if you are involved in some type of destructive activity, if you are hurting yourself in some way, Please stop. Please stop because you have great value and great dignity before the creator of the universe. Second implication of the doctrine of creation is this. Since God is the creator of all things out of nothing, then he owns all things and all people 
Absolutely. Again, from Scripture, a number of verses. Psalm 89, verse 11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 24, 1. Haggai 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And finally, Psalm 50, verses 10 and 11. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hill and all that moves in the field is mine. Now that also means that God owns us completely. Again, scripture, Isaiah 45, 9 says, We are the clay and he is the potter. And he will do with us exactly as he pleases. Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The answer is no. Because the potter has absolute right over the clay. And this also means that in relation to God, we don't own anything. He owns it all. So with regard to our so-called possessions, we're not owners. We're stewards. We're managers of God's resources. Therefore, it's a mistake to think that only a portion of our income belongs to God and the vast majority belongs to us. It all belongs to God. Therefore, as Tom has said on a number of occasions, when we're making a decision about giving, it's not how much of my money am I going to keep, uh, am I going to give, but it's how much of God's money am I going to keep. Because he owns it all, and our responsibility as stewards or managers is to manage those resources, whether it be our time, whether it be our talent, and whether it be our financial resources in a way that is in line with the will of the owner. And there's only one way to know what that is. Because God is a God of revelation, because he reveals himself to us in this book, we can know him, we can know what's important to him, and therefore we can get ourselves in line with who he is and begin to make decisions on the allocation of our resources in a way that pleases the owner. That's our responsibility, to understand that every allocation decision that we make, again, whether it's our time, our talent, or our resources, is a spiritual decision. And that's what the doctrine of creation helps us to see. Thirdly, the doctrine of creation helps us to answer one of life's great questions. Why are we here? The doctrine of creation tells us that everything that exists has a purpose and a reason for being. If God did not create everything, then there is no ultimate purpose of value. Whatever one person wants is just as good as what another person wants. There are no absolutes. Everything is aimless. Everything's random. The only meaning in life is what is arbitrarily created by doing your own thing. But since God did create the world and everything in it, 
then it has an absolute purpose and an absolute goal. And God, as creator, has the right to determine what that purpose and goal is. And you need to understand that God's purpose and God's goal will never be in jeopardy. God always, always accomplishes his purposes. Scripture again, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So, what is God's purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose of God in creation was and is to display his glory in all its fullness. That is the purpose of God, to display his glory in all its fullness. In Numbers chapter 14, verse 21, God says that the fact that he will accomplish that purpose to fulfill, to fill the entire creation with his glory is as absolutely certain as his very existence. You see, the, the Israelites who he had taken out of slavery in Egypt and was leading through the promised land had totally abandoned following him, had gone after idols, were complaining and obstinate, and God said as a result of their attitude and their actions that none of them, of the adults who had come out of the, the land of Egypt and were on their way to Israel, would actually enter the promised land. And he says, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, they will not enter the land. So he compares his existence to the fact that his glory will fill the entire land. People have often asked me, how come God chose Israel? Why did God choose Israel? What was that about? Well, here's the answer. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. God says, I created Israel for my glory. Oftentimes we think, God, why, why me? Why, why did you save me? Why did you take me and open my eyes to see the truth of who I am and who you are. Why did you make me your child? Well, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12, answers that question. He says, God redeemed us for this purpose, to live for the praise of his glory. You see, since God created everything and he owns everything we have, everything we are belongs to God. So therefore, we must ask in everything that we do, does this achieve the purpose of my owner? And now that we know that that purpose is to bring him glory, we have to ask ourselves, does this purchase, does this act, does this attitude, does this bring God glory? You see, it is our purpose, it is the purpose of all of God's creatures to join him as he accomplishes his purpose, and that is to bring him glory. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. That's why we have value. That's why we have responsibility. Now, the question is, how do you do that? How do you bring God glory? Well, I'd like to suggest three things that we can do. I'm sure there are many more, but here's three things that we can do to bring God glory. 
The first is when we recognize that every breath that we take, every effort that we make, every good intention that we fulfill, anything that we do or have is a gift from our merciful creator who owes us absolutely nothing. We bring him glory when we recognize that as creatures, we are totally and utterly dependent upon him for everything. It means we live like little children who are dependent upon their father. I know what joy it would bring me as a dad when my kids would come to me and, and say, Daddy, I, I can't do this. Please help me. I, I, I can't do it without you. Please show me. Please help me. My gosh, what joy that that brought me that I could help my children and they were dependent upon me. That brings God great glory when we recognize that we are just like little children, ultimately dependent upon him for even the breath that we take, for the talent that we have to do the job that we do, for everything. And we bring him glory when we do that. Secondly, we bring God glory when we give him thanks in all circumstances. Ephesians, I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances. Just three days ago, we had a funeral here for a six-month-old baby. And that baby's dad stood here on this platform with his wife next to him and shared stories of the goodness of God in the midst of that tragedy. Shared stories of how God worked in the very short life of that beautiful little boy and even in his death and gave him thanks even for that tragedy. And as a result, the several hundred people sitting in this room were doing nothing but giving glory to God despite those circumstances. You see, we bring God glory when we give him thanks in the good times. Thank him, thank him for the good times. And when we thank him even in the midst of the struggles and challenges of life because we trust him and we know that he is good and he is our creator and we give him great glory. Thirdly, we give him great glory when we obey his word. And when we obey him in the midst of the, of the trials of life. Uh, there are three places in scripture, Romans 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, and 1 Peter 3, that says that we are not to return evil for evil. Romans 12, 21 says, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Uh, I just want to keep calling that Ephesians. 1 Thessalonians and 1 Peter both say, don't return evil for evil, but blessing. You know when you're watching a basketball game, right? The guy who gets the foul is the guy who responds to the first foul. They never see the first guy doing it. They always see the retaliation, right? If we would live with the principles that we're not going to return evil for evil, do you know how that would revolutionize our marriages? Do you know that most of the problems in marriage is that somebody makes a mistake and then the spouse responds with evil towards that evil. If one of us would stop and return blessing for evil, return good for evil, then that fight would stop right there. Then the counseling situations would not occur. Christian marriages would glorify God because we are obedient to what God's word says. In, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. When we repay good for evil, when we obey God's word, 
And those around us see that. Not only do they recognize that there's something different about us, but they give glory to our Father in heaven. And his purposes are accomplished through our lives. See, God is the creator. God is the owner. God is the one who gives purpose. And we, in all of our so-called possessions, are there to do what he pleases. And what pleases him is the ultimate achievement of his purpose, which is to fill the earth with his glory. Therefore, our goal, our purpose, our activity in life should be to bring him glory in everything that we do. And that's going to mean that we have to overcome our natural flinch, which is to be autonomous, which is to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, which is to do it as Frankie Sinatra said, to do it my way. That's what our natural flinch was. That's what scientists will tell us today. But we have to overcome that rebellion. We have to surrender our will to our creator, our owner. And then we have to manage our time and our talents and our resources in a way that glorifies him. Of all the scripture I've studied as I prepared for this message, the one that I enjoy the most is Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. It says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power since you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Our God deserves to receive all glory and all honor and all praise because he is the creator and sustainer of all. Fourth implication of, of creation is that because God is perfect, he doesn't make mistakes. He didn't have to tweak anything when he created it. He didn't have to fix anything. Everything was made exactly as he planned. Each time he spoke something into creation, the Bible follows with, and it was so. Done, perfect, no changes, no fixes. And what that means is that when God speaks, he is, he is completely and 100% trustworthy. That what he says will happen. So when God says in Romans chapter 1 verse 20, in Romans chapter 8 verse 28 that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that's what will happen. When God says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, that's what will happen. When God says I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and bring you to that place where I am, you can get, be guaranteed that that's going to happen. That God, because he is trustworthy, because he is perfect, because everything he says that is, is true, is that he is going to come back and take with him all of his people to be with him forever. Praise God. And the doctrine of creation helps us to understand that and hold on to that and believe that. The fifth implication of the doctrine of creation is that God is infinite. Infinity of God means that he's limitless, that he's measureless, and that he's boundless. Again, scripture, Job, chapter 11, verses 7 through 9. 
Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths of the grave. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. Because God is infinite, when he filled creation in those last three days, he did it abundantly. Okay? The sea was teeming with fish. The sky was swarming with birds. The land was filled with animals. That means that God's never going to run out. That means that he's never going to say to us, Oops, gee, I'm sorry, I, I gave all my blessings to... I, I, I can't help but think of, of Tim Mon when I, when I share this story because Tim got all the blessings, right? The guy can teach, the guy can sing, the guy's an athlete, he can fix things, he's a great leader. How did all that stuff get into him? I'm not jealous, though, don't worry about it. But just because he has all those blessings, God's got more than enough for everybody else. And you know what that means is that God never will say to us, I'm sorry, I can't love you because I've given my love to someone else. God has an unlimited supply of love. God has an unlimited supply of blessing. God has an unlimited supply of relationship. We're finite. We're always limited by, by time, by money, by, by whatever. God is never limited. He will never say to you, I don't care, I don't have time, I don't have blessing, I don't have love for you. And the doctrine of creation reminds us of that truth. The doctrine of creation is, is so important. It is so important for us because it means that we have value. It means that we have responsibility. It means that God has given us responsibility over his resources. Therefore, we have to be wise managers. Therefore, we have to care for our bodies. We have to care for our planet. We are responsible because God created it. Creation means that we are, have an answer to the question of why we're here. We're here to give God glory in all that we do. Creation means that God is trustworthy. We can trust whatever he says, and creation means that God will never run out, that he will never say to us, I don't love you because I love someone else. And finally, creation is important to us because if this universe is faceless, if it's just pitch dark out there because no one's there, then there's no hope outside ourselves. Then all ultimately when we look up, there's nothing there to look back. And that means despair. My, my, my favorite play, and I, I said this earlier, and I thought, well, I've only really been to one play, so. Um, <laughs> my favorite play is Les Mis. And at the end, uh, Javert, who is the, uh, the sheriff, he is the man who is, is committed to the law and committed to only what he can see and doesn't understand grace. He is he's at the end of his rope, and uh, in his final soliloquy, uh, he sings these words, I am reaching, but I fall. And the stars are black and cold as I stare into the void of a world that cannot hold. I'll escape now from that world, from the world of Jean Valjean. There is nowhere I can turn. There is no way to go on. 
You see, Javert looked to the sky and all he saw was blackness. And all he could feel was despair. And as a result, he commits suicide at the end of the play. But there is someone there. There is a creator. There is a God who has revealed himself in his creative act that he is a God of relationship. Not only has he existed for all time as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship, but he demonstrated by his very first act in creation that he is the God of all relationship. If you remember chapter 1, verse 2, we see that the Spirit of God is hovering over creation. That's the same Hebrew word that's used for brood, which means when a bird broods or hovers over her nest, over her eggs, it's caring for, it's loving, it's protecting. That God who created, who is a God of relationship, brooded over, hovered over this creation that the Bible said was void and empty. It was chaotic. It, it appeared to be something that wasn't worthy of relationship, yet God brooded over it, cared for it. He, he took that that was void and without form, and he transformed it from uselessness to goodness, from a mess to beautiful. Don't you think he wants the same thing for you? You are the crowning achievement of his creation. He brooded over his creative act that was void and without form. Don't you think he broods over us? Don't you think he wants to have relationship with us? It's not empty out there. It's not dark out there. There's a God that wants to have a relationship with his creation. He is a God who took nothing and made everything from it. He is a God who brings order out of chaos. And he is a God who cares for us and wants to have a relationship with us. And he wants to have it in an intimate and personal way through his son, God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God the Son, left his glory in heaven to become a man so that he could live among us, so he could pay the price for our sin at the cross of Calvary. Guys, the creation doctrine reveals the gospel, the gospel that God takes a mess and brings life. God took our chaotic and mess of a life. And when we come in repentance and faith, believing he is who he says he is, he makes us into a new creation. He changes us. Just as he took that creation from chaos to order, he takes our life from a mess to beautiful. Because we're now in Jesus. If you are here today and you have never experienced that relationship, if when you look in that sky it is dark and empty, please believe that there is a God 
who cares about you, who loves you, who loves you enough to die for your sin and pay that price, and all you have to do is believe it and come to him in repentance and faith, asking him to be your Lord and your Savior, and he will make you a new creation. We're going to have an opportunity now to respond to this great creator God. We're going to have an opportunity to give him thanks, to make our commitment to live a life that will please him and accomplish his purpose of bringing him glory. Let's do that together as we pray. Father, thank you for the fact of creation, that you are there, that you took darkness and, and chaos and brought order in life. And thank you that you did that not only in creation, but you did that in the lives of your children. That you took our lives as undeserving as we are and changed them, made us new, made us your children. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.